Tonight I'd like to begin by answering some of the questions that have been coming in. This first one is a, is a bit different from the others because it's not about practice, but I thought I'd answer it first and then we don't have to think about it again. Could you give a brief review about, I'm not going to use the words that are here, but about the, the nun's lineage, lineages, and how they're accepted and sort of what the state of things is for the communities. So basically just a two-minute history. When the Buddha became enlightened and he started to teach and there were other men who wanted to join him and be his disciples, he would say, come bhikkhu. And that was their ordination. And bhikkhu means an alms mendicant uh, Someone who, may, who who stays alive based on the generosity of others. And then there is at least one account of that same thing happening with a woman, Kambikuni. And there's a, a story that commonly is told about the ordination of the Buddha's stepmother, Mahapajapati, and the number of women from the Sakyan clan, the Buddha's clan. And there's some debate about whether that really was the first ordination or if it was Kambakuni. And so, in, in any case, the, the order of women was started some years. There's also a lot of disagreement about how many years, but maybe some think around six or seven, something a little, little later, but there was a women, woman's order started. And there is um, a sutta in the Pali Canon that makes it clear that the Buddha had this intention from the beginning to have the fourfold assembly, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, lay men followers and lay women followers. And he really believed that all four were necessary and it was important that there were members of each of those groups who were learned and accomplished before he would pass away. So that certainly was the case and he um, acknowledged bhikkhus and bhikkhunis for their abilities and their their awakened minds. And after the Buddha passed away, it was about 1,500 years before we didn't want any longer have the Kunis in the southern countries in Sri Lanka. But the, the, in between that time, the Kunis and the Kus had gone into China um, bhikkhus had gone into Tibet, um, but bhikkhunis had not. Bhikkhunis had also gone into Korea. And the Southeast Asian countries, they think that probably bhikkhunis had not gone into that, those areas either. But the bhikkhuni lineage continued um, in, in China and Korea. And when there were uh, no more bhikkhunis, as far as we know, in in India and Sri Lanka, then the 
The Kunis continued in the north. And when there were no more bhikkhus in Sri Lanka, what they did was they went to Thailand and brought bhikkhus back to Sri Lanka to restart the bhikkhu order in Sri Lanka. So what, about a, it's been about a thousand years now that there haven't, until more recently, the bhikkhus have not been in Southeast Asia. But in about the mid-1990s, uh, women who were living as nuns, women have always wanted to be nuns. And they would, they would take on the degree of monastic rules and, and discipline that they, were, that they could. And so many of those women, particularly the ones living in Sri Lanka, started to look for a way to gain the whole ordination of the bhikkhuni order as the Buddha had laid it down. And the way they did that primarily was to bring the, the bhikkhuni line that had been preserved in the north to come back and, and restart or revive the bhikkhuni order in the south. So the question is really like, now how is it for the Queens? Here we are in 2015, it's been about 20 years since the Queens started to come back to the Theravada tradition. And um, my, I will just share my experience is that I'm very happy to be here in a part of the world where there's been so much progress with regard to the protection and empowerment of women. Because there, there's no conflict or political issue around whether or not a, if a woman wants to follow this beautiful tradition and discipline that the Buddha laid down for us from the beginning on par with what he gave to men. Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu, same, same ordination. Okay. Um, then we have this opportunity to do it. And there are women who are doing this in, in Thailand and in many bhikkhunis in Sri Lanka and other places. And it's gradually taking root. And there is gradually more and more acceptance and support. So I just want to express my gratitude for being able to do this. Because I certainly know the experience very well of coming to the point of faith where one wants to do this and only this. To follow the Buddha's prescription for living the holy life as fully as possible. And it's really a gift for that to be able to exist in today's world and I think a gift to our culture and our society. So I would encourage support of the Bikinis wherever you find them and, uh, and support and encouragement for the Bikus to participate in that, in that revival whenever you can encourage them to do so. Because when, when the Buddha created the bhikkhuni order, he gave the bhikkhus some duties around that. He told them, you, you've been learning all this from me, now I want you to teach 
these women how it works. Teach them the rules, teach them the Dhamma. And so he, he created rules for the bhikkhus about their responsibilities to the bhikkhus. And the bhikkhus who have, there are many supportive bhikkhus, especially the Sri Lanka, in the Sri Lanka um, tradition. And they do give the teachings to the bhikkhus today as they did um, back 2,500 years ago, 1,500 years ago. And it's very beautiful. And I think encouraging those bhikkhus who haven't yet picked up this beautiful part of what's really in their tradition would be lovely if they could. hope that answered the question. Now, practice. So this one is um, saying that I find a lot of the teachings to point at something that's so beyond that it feels impractical to me at times and also confusing. Do you think that practicing metta lends the mind, leads the mind to see things clearly as they are? Metta feels so much clearer to me intuitively. I feel it serves me and is more helpful. So there's a sutta in the Sanyutta Nikaya, which is the connected discourses, that talks about how metta leads to enlightenment. And he, the Buddha said it's when you practice metta along with practicing mindfulness. And he actually goes through all of the seven factors of enlightenment, and I'll read through them for you. But you know, when you when you combine metta, loving kindness, and mindfulness, it takes on a richness. And this proclivity or tendency or or propensity to practice metta is beautiful and it can be utilized. But we then the practice of mindfulness, which now Ajahn Brahm is saying what we really need is kindfulness. <laughs> and I think that's that's really beautiful. And then also practicing metta with the investigation of experience, practicing metta with energy, with lyria, and bringing up the energy to abandon what's unwholesome and develop what's wholesome, practicing metta with joy, with piti, practicing metta with tranquility, vipassati, practicing metta with, I, I like this uh, translation, collectedness for samadhi, practicing metta along with samadhi, and practicing metta with equanimity. And the Buddha said, in that way, metta leads to enlightenment. And what a beautiful way to go. So I think that this is very important to realize that we should get to know our own mind and get to know what really inspires your own mind and what feels true and clear and, and what you can, where you can get a toehold, where you can get a foothold, where you can 
Uh, the marvelous scramble up the mountain. And you don't have to do it all. You don't have to do, he said, don't worry about getting this and this and this and this and this. Take what you've got and scramble up the mountain. <laughs> Awaken. That's the thing. It's not about, you know, because all of these tools don't have to work for you. The main thing is that you find the ones that work for you and, and have a sense of the array of them so that when you get to a place where things aren't working, you've got something new you can pick up and try and see. This morning you spoke about seeing what is seen, hearing what is heard. Can you speak about how does it work skillfully with loss? Loss is real and yet it's also all perception. How can we know or experience it without adding to it? When we talk about loss of something or someone that we've been deeply connected with, of course that practice of not, not proliferating in um, that which wounds us more is useful. But there are levels of investigation and levels of just self-care and kindness and levels of acceptance of this being the way it is that can help us move through that process. And of course, the, the, the preparation for loss is even more important. So we're talking about this after, kind of after it's happened. But every day we can prepare for the losses that we know we're going to experience. Some long time ago I read the Tibetan book of Living and Dying. And at the, my recollection, even though it was a long time ago, is that at the very beginning it talked about what we let go of when we die. We let go of our, our work. We let go of our home. We let go of our our car, we let go of our friends, we let go of our family, every member, think about it. We let go of our body, we let go of our, our prestige. Well, there's this line of a song that my mom was into. When I finally, when, when my trophies I finally lay down. And let go of all of it. And when I read that, it really struck me, and I thought, well, I've got to get a lot better at letting go. Because any one of those right now would throw me off balance. And so this is the practice. Practicing letting go, practicing letting go. And when, when there's a loss, we can turn to the Dhamma, and as I said earlier, we can allow it to come up strong. And really, like, yes, this is what the practice is for. This is what the practice is for. It's to be able to be present with this reality. And to hold it all, to hold the feelings, to be kind to ourselves, to appreciate how every being 
pursue this one way or another. And and how and how it's 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 not I wouldn't um, I wouldn't apply this idea of it being just perception too strongly. But but more just being present with the whole experience of it. Not to minimize it and not to proliferate over it. When we go through a loss, I remember myself waking up in the morning and for a minute everything feels normal. And then you remember. And I remember feeling like there's just this giant hole in my chest. And something that feels like a connecting cable that's now just kind of hanging there a limp because it's cut off. These feelings are just what's there. Be with them. Know that this is the kind of feeling that people have had over and over again. And it's okay. It's okay to have those feelings. And they do change just like everything else. They're impermanent. It's all right. But just like that, walking that precipice with all feeling, to, to not shove it under the rug, distract ourselves from it too much. Sometimes we have to somewhat just to ease that next hour. Sometimes when the pain is so strong, you have to just get through the next hour. But in general, that conscious setting it aside and bringing it back is, is a good technique when it's necessary. But in general, we don't want to cover that over or hide it or minimize it. And we also don't want to get caught. Oh, I kind of don't like this word, but wallowing is not quite right. I don't mean to make it like, I don't want to, I don't want to make this sound pejorative, but to, to really get sucked into it either, you know, so that precipice of mindfulness and presence, of kindness and presence with it, is really what we can do. Please see more about the practice of seeing the impermanent nature of all objects, and I think that this is related, of course, because whether we are suffering or not, we can be looking at everything around us and noticing its impermanence. And the more that sinks into the mind, the more peaceful we become. It's paradoxical. You know, some people say, well, don't, doesn't that get depressing? But actually, no. The more we see reality, the, the happier we become. And it's very helpful to continue, you know, to really seek out teachers who will teach about this over and over again. It's one of the things I love about the Thai forest tradition. It is just they talk about it all the time. Ajahn Buddhadasa, I've never met him. He was, he was around before my time. 
heard that he started every Dhamma talk by saying, friends, aging, sickness, and death. I mentioned this in one of the board meetings for my Vihara, and the president said, please don't do that. <laughs> I don't think he thinks Westerners can take it. <laughs> Maybe the ones who like that sort of thing will be the ones who show up. <laughs> It, it, and I think for him, it, it feels like it's it's going to be a downer. You know, you're not going to have happy people around. But that it's the opposite. It's like it's like take it in. This is impermanent, and it's okay. That's how it is. So this idea of practicing the whole path, you're practicing meditation to to develop the strength. To be able to see, to look at reality, this comes because of our concentration practice. Practicing mindfulness, which is the key to looking at our reality, looking at the way things are. Practicing virtue, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and investigating right view in everything that comes along. The beautiful and the ugly not mistaking one for another, being able to see what's not beautiful in the beautiful and the other way around, being able to see impermanence in everything that's impermanent, which is everything here, being able to recognize the suffering even in the things that we think are dear to us. And that, that teaching of the Buddha that says, if you have one Love, you have one suffering. If you have two loves, you have two sufferings. You have three loves. <laughs> and there's this, there's this sutta where one of his main lay followers, women, women lay followers, Wisaka, or Magara's mother, as he described as. She's a very wealthy woman, and she gave so many things to the Sangha. And she came to the monastery, and her hair was wet, and her clothes were wet. And the Buddha said, so Wisanka, why do you come here in the middle of the day with your hair and your clothes wet? And she said, my beloved, one of my beloved grandsons died, child. And he said, Wisanka, would you like to have as many children and grandchildren as there are people living in solitude? And she said, yes, I would like to have as many children and grandchildren as the people living in solitude. And the Buddha said, Misaka, how many people die every day in solitude? She said, well, 20, sometimes 19, 18, 17, 16, sometimes 10, sometimes 5, sometimes 4, 3, 2, 1, but there's always somebody dying. And the Buddha said, so every day you would come here with wet hair and wet clothes if you had as many children and grandchildren as there are in solitude. She said, oh, I don't want as many children and grandchildren as there are in solitude. Sometimes we just have to really work with the mind to be able to take in the reality because our mind wants to think this is more permanent than it is. We really have to 
hold it up to the fire. <laughs> Make the mind look. Bring that in and feel the reality of it. So the Buddha told, told us to reflect on death with every breath. So when Bhandikapatana was reflecting on it every night, it's pretty good, but it's not quite enough, I guess. <laughs> so just, this is by way of encouragement. Um, when I, when I find myself feeling bad about something like some treasured possession gets broken, then I know for sure that clinging there, that wishing for something to be different than it is, that holding on to something that is destined to fail, to disintegrate, to break, then I have to work with that clinging. This is about letting go of clinging and letting go of the suffering that comes with it. And the more we do that, day after day, the less of a shock it is when something happens and the more we're able to say, oh, okay. That glass picture that was my grandma's just fell off the counter. Okay. Grandma passed away years ago. It's not going to really matter. Here's a couple of them about working with the mind. Um, particularly some of these thought patterns that can get very ingrained. The comparing mind, the judging mind, in recent years, the comparing mind has gotten stronger usually resulting or contributing to a sense of not good enough or less than. How to work with the comparing mind. And the other one is, do you have some suggestions for how to go about exploring that belief that one is not good enough and ways to address and shift that perception? Well, the first thing, this has come up a couple of times in the interviews, so some of you have heard some of these things that I'm going to say probably, but one thing that I, I learned in exploring this kind of what's this underlying concept in my mind that causes me to react, to have anger, to have hurt feelings, and in, in following um, the trail down to that part that, that, that is that pain in the gut or wherever it is, um, that core where the pain is, and then seeing that it's always kind of around the same thing. I mentioned today that in, a, in the interview space, I think it was, that I was in a workshop with 87 people. Or did I say that in here? No. This workshop, which was looking at this very thing, how do you get down to that core concept or mistaken belief, we might say. And there was an exercise set up to help us identify for each of us what that core belief is. And, and then people said it. And all around the room it's like, I'm not good enough, or I'm not lovable, or... It was 
one thing after another, different ways of expressing, but it's like that's the part that's really painful. And even when we experience someone else having that pain, we resonate because we've got that pain in ourselves. And I don't even, I don't, I won't say that this is everybody in the world because I think cultures are different around this stuff. But in the West, at least, it was very impressive to hear that 87 times. And you kind of get the idea that wait, this isn't, this isn't just me. So, what's, what's creating that, that suffering, what, at the root of that suffering, is a, is a mistaken idea. And it's a, it's a habit, it's a pattern that's been deeply ingrained. And in our, in our progression through the condoms, we've already talked about the body, and we've talked about feeling, and we've talked about perception. And now it's the mental formation, the, the sankara. And these are the more complicated mental actions, mental activities. And they're also our habits, our mental habits. So some of them are, you know, like the sand on the bottom of the ocean that just gets moved around as the water flows back and forth. And some of them are like the coral, where they're really calcified. And whatever the suffering, whatever causes the suffering, it's always going to be about some kind of attachment or clinging. But when we have one of these erroneous ideas, focus on the self, then what we need to do is, is bring it to light. And it's the same for any mental habit. Any habit can be changed, but we, as long as, if we bring it into conscious awareness, any habit. And so we bring this, this idea that we have about ourselves to light, and then we see, you know, what that's about, and then we look at whether this is true or not. Do I believe this? And we look for the evidence that puts it more into a Dharma perspective. Is it good enough for what? Or this idea of guilt. I remember being in Thailand and talking with a monk, great monk, who was a, um, from Britain, from England, and he had gone to live with Ajahn Mahabua and stayed there for 40 years in that monastery, pretty much didn't go anywhere else. And he was amazing. And it, you know, just talking with him about these things that, he said, with regard to guilt, it's like, so what? You're guilty. So what? <laughs> you know, starting to break this stuff up. So, you know, like, Rajan Chah would say, if somebody calls you a dog, and that's not a very nice thing to call you in Thailand, just look at the other tail. <laughs> no tail, no problem. <laughs> Got a tail? Okay, work that out. <laughs> you know, as, and you can see how much easier life becomes if we don't start attaching a whole bunch of meaning about ourselves around all these things. Right? 
So, so it's like we have to investigate those meanings that we attach to things and start to change the mental habit. So I wanted to you know, show you this book, The Power of Habit, and I put it on the board back there. I'm not going to talk about the concepts very much, but they use, they use neuropsychology to understand the, the anatomy of habit and how you go about changing them. And if I, if I pull some of what's in there into the language of the Dhamma, then what we're looking at really is what's the gratification? What do I gain by looking at this this way? What am I getting out of it? Because every habit has a kind of reward to it. Even the things that really are very bad for us, there's a reason why we do them. And we need to make that conscious. And the Buddha did this. He said, what's the gratification? What's the danger? And what's the escape? This is actually going to be the, the practice I'm going to encourage you to pick up tomorrow. Looking at what comes in, what, what is it that you cling to, and what's the gratification, what's the danger, and what's the escape? And I'll talk more about that tomorrow. How to work with that. When there's suffering, and you look at your pattern of reaction, like getting angry, what's the gratification? What's the danger? What's the escape? I want something. I want that ice cream. What's the gratification? Well, that's a easy one. What's the danger? I have a friend who's diabetic, and she'll just binge on ice cream. And she's got a very obvious danger going on. But what's the gratification? And it's more than the sweet taste. What's the escape? So when we when we recognize like this this I'm not good enough thing, there are things that we can do to retrain the mind. And somebody brought up, well, this is like cognitive behavioral, blah, 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 and it is. And everything in psychology that works is where it comes back to the Dhamma. <laughs> so that's okay. We can call it whatever, but let's do it. <laughs> and uh, it's it's like um, we can remind ourselves of the good. Is it true that I'm not good enough? I mean, I don't feel that way anymore. I don't even think in those terms anymore. I think because now my mind is more trained to think in terms of the Dhamma. You know, following the five precepts. This was a big, big gain, I think, when I realized that when I'm judging, talking about the judging and comparing mind, when I'm judging, like somebody else, I'm finding someone really irritating. And then I would think, are they really doing anything wrong? Or are they just being irritating? Or am I just, you know, I'm just like, problems over here, right? But then I, I, I evaluated their behavior across the five precepts. Well, they're not killing, intentionally killing any living beings, and they're not taking anything that isn't given go down the line, I just feel irritated. 
but you're not doing anything wrong. I actually had this with my mother a fair bit. <laughs> and why was I irritated? Because she was getting old and I didn't like it. <sighs> I mean, I had to really ask myself, why is this irritating me? I don't want her to be old. I want her to be my mother. I want her to take care of me. Is that so bad? No, but it's not very realistic. And it's also not very kind. So I would go through the list. I'm not doing anything wrong. And then she knows me so well, even if I wasn't saying anything, she'd say, am I irritating you? <laughs> and I would say, I feel irritated, but you're not doing anything. And as soon as those words would escape my lips, my lips, I could feel the ease and release in the air, in my own heart and in hers. As soon as I would say, you're not doing anything wrong, something would go peaceful inside of me. Took away the irritation. And so I started to learn that that primitive part of the brain believes what we tell it. And if, if we keep going over the I'm not good enough story, then that gets ingrained more and more and more. But if we start to tell it a different story, it believes that. And we feel lighter. And the smile comes more easily. And it works. And you, you've got to find your own flavor. You've got to find your own words. You've got to know what the words are for you and what's true for you. But don't just let it go. Because this is baggage you don't want to carry all the way to the end of the line. Drop it. And, and we can. We really can. Can you speak about finding balance between using inquiry and present moment awareness? In this retreat, inquiry or investigation has been rich. And talking about a few of the inquiries being made. And, um, but this can take away from present moment awareness or awareness of breath. Which techniques to use when? My practice is very proactive, and that's what I find in canon. I don't find a bunch of present awareness, all-around awareness, kind of in there. That seems to be more of a generation of, of more recent take on Buddhism. And I like the original teachings a lot. I find them really direct and effective. Now there is one place where I would say I could kind of take this um, being present. It's, it's, it's out of the people like Lukaska Key being aware right at awareness. But it's a bit advanced actually. And I think that we need to be using all the different aspects of the path. So first thing is, as much as possible, calm the mind before you investigate. 
If you're in meditation, use the techniques like following your breath, staying focused on your breath to get to a certain level of samadhi or a certain level of peace. And then go into investigation. You're much more likely to have the results of insight arising if you do that. But on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day level, level, when you're in your car driving, when you're talking to people, whatever, you can be aware and investigate what's going on and understand what's going on inside you. So Ajahn Sumedho gave a really good example one time when he was at, they started the monastery in England and this woman who was a supporter, an elder woman, who was giving a lot of support. These are the early days when they didn't have boots for their feet in the wintertime. You know, I mean, they were really like, you know, scraping by. And um, he got so irritated with her, he yelled at her. He thought, I just yelled at the lady <laughs> who's supporting us. <laughs> what am I doing? And he said, then he started to learn that he had to be present with the feelings arising in himself as he was present with what was going on with the people who were talking to him. And being present with all of that. This is how we we have to learn about ourselves. We have to understand. And, And so investigation is right in there with that presence of what's going on. It's not separate. I've I've been working with uh, mindfulness in and out breathing, Yanapanasati teaching of the Buddha for years and years, and it's been incredibly fruitful. And when you really get into that, you'll see you'll see concentration, you'll see mindfulness, you'll see vipassana. It's all there, and it's not in neat categories. And I said Dr. Pasta one time. Like, these arise together. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, it's not like it is in the books, is it? <laughs> so just to kind of bear that in mind, I hope that's clear enough. It's like what to use when, get to know the tools well enough so that you and, and try them and see what's effective. And just play with it, work with it. Now this one's really fun. There's a couple of them. Right. What's your understanding of God in the Buddhist context? As compared to the, the seminary years and the Protestant understanding. I've never understood why Buddhism is called a non-theistic religion when emptiness slash the beyond seem like code words for a different kind of God. So, and then the, this other one was to talk some about the concept of God and Buddhism. And could you please share some of your understanding and reflections about rebirth and also about Davis? So, when I when I think about you know this question of uh, a non-theistic religion and is there God in Buddhism? I always want to say, it depends on your definition of God. 
And why is Karl non-theistic in terms of you know categorization of religions? Is because in in Buddhism we don't God is not set up as the creator of the universe. So a creator God concept. God as omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, present everywhere, all-knowing and all-powerful, that's not the concept in Buddhism. So in Buddhism, one of the main distinctions is you're not looking for any entity outside yourself to save you. You have to work that out internally. You're responsible for your salvation. Now, having said that, the Buddhist cosmology includes God in that in those kinds of terms, not as all-powerful and not as all-present, not as all-knowing, but you'll see Brahma, which very much has the qualities of what many people's concept of God is. And you'll see devas and many beings in other realms and many realms. And as I said the other night, as real as you and I are. And in the Pali Canon, I think it's in the Middle Length Discourses. I want her to read my mind again. She's getting better at it. <laughs> Where the Buddha actually realizes that Brahma, the god, Brahma god, has developed this wrong view that he's permanent. And in a number of places in the Pali Canon, it says that the psychic powers of the Buddha and some of his other disciples made it possible to have bodily mastery as far as the Brahman realm. So the Buddha, and it says in the canon, as, as quickly as you can extend your flexed arm or flex your extended arm, the Buddha disappeared from here and appeared in the Brahman realm to talk to Brahma. And Brahma greeted the Buddha and he said, oh, I'm so glad you came. You're welcome, so welcome here. It's been a long time since you've come to visit. And then they have this discussion, and the Buddha clears his stuff for Brahma, and, and it, it's like, you're not permanent, you're impermanent. And finally, through this discussion, Brahma goes, you're right. And the reason that Brahma has this idea that he's permanent is because he's been there for such a long time, the lifespan is just so long. And then the whole idea, the way rebirth works, is that we're born in any of these realms. And, and all of our Western religions have rebirth. We just don't call it that. If you believe that when you die here, you appear somewhere else, that's rebirth. But the idea is that it happens once, and you're forever in heaven or hell, which never made any sense to me. In Buddhism, you're only there as long as the karma that you created keeps you there, and then you leave. 
or when my son was a monkey, said it's like going into a restaurant and you're ordering a cup of coffee and the person at the next table orders a five-course meal. Well, when they bring the check, he gets the check for the five-course meal and you get the check for the coffee. And that's karma. So if you've done something that takes you into a situation that's not very pleasant, you're only going to be there as long as that energy continues to go into that until that energy runs out. And that's the explanation for why some of us live long and some of us don't in, in this plane and then in whatever realm we're in again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Now in terms of creation, the Buddha said that he could see, on the night of his enlightenment, he saw his myriad past lives. So he saw his past lives through eons of world expansion and contraction, like the whole Big Bang, and then going back to, like, I don't know, what is that, the supernova or something or other, and then again and again, and he saw his past lives through all of that, and he gained through that an understanding of how what we do in one life sets up the conditions for the next life, and so on. He also said there's no discoverable beginning. And there's a whole bunch of discourses about this in the Sanghita Nikaya. There's no discoverable beginning. So there's not this creator-god idea. The idea is that when the universe expands, Brahma is the first being. And then the other beings come into that realm. And that's why it looks like that's a creator. So that may sound a little out there. Nobody's asking you to believe that on faith. So then how does one come to an idea that, well, that's how it works? Basically, it's through investigation and practice. There's some things we may not know for ourselves in this lifetime, but it's amazing what we can know for ourselves in this lifetime if we cultivate meditation. There are a lot of people who have past life memories, for example, that are clear, distinct, traceable. And what they gain from that is an understanding of some of the things that are happening now, like maybe a relationship with someone that they had a relationship before in the past with, with qualities that they don't understand until they have that memory. Well, that doesn't mean we have to have those memories in order to clear up you know, what's going on now. Many of us won't. But if you start to see that the Buddha's teachings really ring true in your day-to-day -day experience and you start to investigate further into more of them and you test them and you start to notice, you may start to realize, okay, this really explains something that I didn't understand before. So that's the way we build faith. So start with what you can actually verify and validate. Keep an open mind for the rest. And then, you know, gradually, faith develops. And gradually, we come to the place where there is a full confidence in the Buddha, in the Dharma and the Sangha, those qualities. And that's what's absolutely essential for entering the stream. So, just keep investigating.
and learning from the canon. Um, there were things that happened in my meditation before I was exposed to Buddhism that couldn't be explained, and then I saw them explained by the Buddha. And that was really heartening. It's like, oh, good. I can understand. Okay, this makes sense now. And it's useful to tell people who have had experiences because then they can give you some sense of what to look for, what to explore. So, from my perspective, there's there are beings in these realms. And personally, I have no problem with the idea of Jesus being in heaven and being the way he was on earth and being there available and, and ready to receive the people who believe and, and are focused. Because where our focus is, is where we're going. And so I think that that actually works. Now the Buddha would say, you know, going to heaven is nice, but it's not going to lead to enlightenment. That'll end at some point, you know, you know maybe back here. But, you know, for a lot of people in my life, you know, I'm happy that they're living a virtuous life, and that's what, where they're headed. I think that's not so bad. So I think there's this, there's this potential for Kalenya Bodhisattva and all the Bodhisattvas and Jesus and all of the other, you know, beings that people have perceived doing what people are, you know, experiencing them doing. I don't see a conflict in that, maybe. And that's my story. Well, I think I've exhausted the time and the questions. I hope I haven't exhausted you. I'm just telling you the truth as I know it without holding back because I think you can take it. And I hope that if it's going to turn you off in some way, you just at least hold that kind of lightly and, you know, keep investigating. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.